You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 11 is where we are this morning. We come today to verse 25. We're going to read down to verse 30. Matthew 11, and we read beginning at verse 25. At that time... Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, I thank you this morning that I am one of your forgiven ones. And even after having been saved, Lord, as the book of James says, we all stumble in many ways. And indeed, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, all of us would be destroyed. For apart from justification by faith alone, apart from the imputation of the righteousness of Christ our account, we all stand undone before you. You are holy, holy, holy. And though we have been redeemed, we still are sinners. Forgiven sinners delivered sinners, justified, completely accepted in the Beloved, but nonetheless, Lord, we sin in many ways, and yet we know the joy and the freedom of the knowledge that we are forgiven. Lord, we need your help in this next hour. Apart from the strength you provide, apart from the working of your Spirit, I can do nothing But as listeners, we are just as dependent. For Lord, unless you teach us, we don't learn. And so we ask that you would be with us in that way in this next hour. Lord, that you would be at work in my own mind and heart as I preach. Helping me to give clear expression to the things you've taught me. Lord, even I would ask, enlightening the way as I preach this morning, that anything that you would have me to say would be said, and anything that would not be helpful to your people would be Lord, you would work in such a way that it wouldn't be shared. And Lord, would you feed your sheep as a result of this day in the the Word of God? And would you correct us? And would you rescue us? And would you sustain us? You know what we need. And your Word is sufficient for all those needs. And in this we rejoice and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I will always remember when I first encountered the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. We now know what people are talking about when they talk about the five points of Calvinism or 
We know what people mean when they talk about the doctrines of grace, but at the time that I first encountered those truths, I was a relatively new Christian, almost brand new. I I didn't have a lot of uh, doctrinal or theological depth. I just knew that the Lord had saved me and I loved Him. And I had a brand new burden for the people all around me who didn't know Christ. And I had a brand new zeal for sharing the gospel. But there was a, a man in our church who had been taught these things and I knew his son, and so sometimes I ended up in his home. And and he began to share with me about the doctrines of grace. And I can remember how I argued with that man. How I resisted those things. Because to my mind, it just didn't make sense. I could not reconcile the idea that God is absolutely sovereign in the matter of salvation. That there is predestination and there is electing grace and there is an effectual call and that Christ died for his elect I just couldn't reconcile those things in my mind with God's love for sinners and the freeness of the gospel offer but eventually you study the Bible and when you do you see that what he was saying was true and so what was once troublesome to me became sweet to me I saw that this is no small subject in Scripture. I saw that it can't be escaped. There's virtually no book in the Bible where you can escape it. I saw that I could not deny these truths and be submissive to Scripture. And so in God's good time, He brought me to surrender. And I embraced it. And that understanding of the sovereignty of God changed my worldview. It didn't just change my thinking about how I came to Christ. It changed my thinking about everything because I came to understand that God is sovereign over everything. In fact, if He's not sovereign over salvation, it would literally be the only thing in all of His created universe that He is not sovereign over. It would be the only thing in all of His doings that He is not sovereign over. And thank God He is sovereign over salvation also. And so I came to embrace the truth that there's nothing happening in this world, there's nothing happening in my life that doesn't have a purpose. God is not only sovereign in His deliverance of me, He is sovereign in His development of me. So that every day, whatever I'm facing, whatever I'm going through, there's a purpose for what I'm facing I've come to the place, by the grace of God, where I rest in His sovereignty. I rejoice in His sovereignty. I celebrate it. I magnify it. I'm taught by it. I'm guided by it. I'm shaped by it. And what I've learned is that my desire to rejoice in and magnify the sovereignty of God is something that Jesus has taught me. I didn't come to that on my own. I delight in God's sovereignty because God delights in God's sovereignty. I delight in God's sovereignty because my Lord delights in God's sovereignty. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you must be taught by Jesus. And indeed, the Bible tells us that you and I, if we are born again, we've been given His mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who 
has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. And what that means is God has given us through salvation, by virtue of the new birth, by virtue of the indwelling spirit, by virtue of the new nature that we now have, we have been given the capacity to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that conformity is not just in the realm of behavior, it's in the realm first and foremost of our thinking. We have the mind of Christ. And so to be conformed to the mind of Christ must include what we see in Jesus regarding the sovereignty of God. How did our Lord think about the sovereignty of God? And if we're to learn from our Savior and Lord and Shepherd, then we must embrace what we see in Him. The verses we've come to today show us how Jesus thought and felt about the sovereignty of God. I think it's one of the richest passages in all the New Testament. As I've had opportunity this week to examine it closely, so rich. It's rich no matter how you approach it. If we were to preach it this morning in a way that advances through it structurally, we just you know meet with the truth as it comes to us in three parts, actually, is how I would organize it. It's rich. But if you take a look at these verses from sort of a 10,000-foot view, if you look at these verses thematically, it's just as rich. And so what I've chosen to do is to do both. This morning I'm going to take that 10,000-foot view of the verses. We're going to see some themes that just lie on the surface of the text. Next Sunday morning we'll return here, we'll walk through it structurally, and we'll see its richness once again. But today as we look at it, big picture view, there is one main point that I've been praying will be driven home to your heart. One main point. We're going to have six points this morning, but there's one main point in the six points. And I pray you go home with this one main point. Here it is. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. And if you understand that and respond to that the way that Jesus did, you will delight in it. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, and if you see it and respond to it in the way that you're Lord and Savior, I mean, you profess to know Christ, right? You are a Christ follower. You are His disciple. So if you see this subject and respond to it in the way that Jesus did, you will worship God for His sovereignty. You will delight in His sovereignty. Maybe somebody's listening to me today that you've been struggling with the subject. You've been struggling with the truth that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Well, my prayer for you is you'll leave today committed to embracing your Savior's view of this subject. This morning we consider six observations about God's electing grace taken from the delight that Jesus expressed in that sovereignty. Six observations about God's electing grace taken from the delight that Jesus expressed in that sovereignty. I'll just give you each of the points as we come to them. The first thing we see in the verses is this. God's electing grace is a reality. 
we talk about predestination, we talk about God's choice in salvation, this is not something we have made up. This is not some sort of theological grid that you're laying on top of the Scriptures. This is something that emerges from the Scriptures when you study them honestly. As I said, what I discovered is it's all over the Bible, and the only way I could escape it would be to deny what is clear. And so eventually I had to submit to it. God's electing grace is a reality. It is true that salvation is determined by God. Man is responsible, yes. But God is the one who's made the choice as to those who will be saved. Out of the mass of humanity, lost in Adam, before time, God made a choice of some, to save some. That is true. That's a reality. The opening of verse 25 is significant. Notice those opening words. At that time, Jesus said. Why does Matthew include that? At that time, Jesus said. This is not just to make a connection in terms of the historical setting. It is also meant to make a theological connection. It takes our minds right back to the previous verses and what we see our Lord doing in the previous verses. What has He been doing? He's been pronouncing woe upon Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Why? Because though the kingdom has been presented to them in unmistakable terms, the signs that Jesus has been doing, the significance of those signs makes unmistakable the fact that the kingdom of God has come near and the King, the Messiah, is present. Though these things have been so clear, those cities have proven to be foolish, unbelieving rejecting the message, falsely saying that the reason they reject the message is because of the messengers. John the Baptist comes in funeral mode, they don't like him. Jesus comes in wedding mode, they don't like him. But what they really don't like is the message. Those cities are emblematic of the nation as a whole. Those cities are emblematic of humanity as a whole in our sinful stubbornness. Lost man can come face to face with truth like sunshine. The sun in all of its brilliance, face to face with truth. And if left to his own nature, if left to his own nature since the fall, if left to his own condition since the fall, he will not be able to see that light. He will not be able to hear the truth. He has a heart that is like stone in response to what he's presented. And he will go on in his lostness if he is left to himself. And Jesus, we, we talked about it last week, that word woe is a combination of warning and compassion. There is sorrow in that word woe. Oh, how terrible it will be for you, Chorazin. Oh, how awful it's going to be for you, Bethsaida, Capernaum. You think you're going to be exalted to heaven, but you're going to be taken to Hades as Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. So He weeps over lost humanity. He warns, but He warns with warmth. He warns with love. He warns with compassion. It is at that very time, as He has pronounced woes over these cities, that He is also giving thanks. 
And what is he giving thanks for? He is giving thanks for those who have seen, who have heard, who have believed. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. What things is he talking about? You have hidden these things. What things? Well, he's just been talking about the significance of his miracles. Woe to you, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. What are these things? The miracles he's performed and the significance of those miracles. The message communicated by those miracles. Now Jesus, after pronouncing woe upon those who are going to go to the judgment, He gives thanks to His Father that to some, the true significance of these miracles, it's been revealed. To those who are like infants, they've seen, they've heard, they've received, they've believed. And He is giving thanks for this to His Father. Because it is God who has hidden these things from some and revealed these things to others. What what does that teach us? It teaches us that salvation really is by grace, isn't it? it? It teaches us that salvation isn't owed to anybody. The concealment is judgment. The revelation is grace. Nobody deserved to understand, but some did. And it's the Father who made the difference. And that's grace. The judgment is just. The grace is grace. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It is freely bestowed. The difference between those who are going to be damned and those who are going to be saved is the Father's good pleasure, His gracious will, His choice. And so this is the first thing that stands out in the text. Electing grace, God making a choice of some for salvation, God hiding in the sense of not revealing, keeping concealed the truth in the case of some, but revealing the significance of these things to others. This is a reality. God actually does this. Electing grace is a reality. Second point, God's electing grace is reason for worship. This is reason for worship. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord, sovereign over heaven and earth. I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Let's stop there for just a moment. I'll come to the next verse 
here in just a bit. What is Jesus doing? He's giving thanks. For Jesus, you see, God's electing grace is a reason for thanksgiving. That's interesting. The word that is translated there, praise in the LSB, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven. It's a Greek word that really just speaks of a confession. The dictionary has this, to declare openly in acknowledgement, profess, acknowledge. He is confessing what is true of his Father. But the reason why it's appropriate to translate that thanks or praise is because he's embracing what he's confessing. He delights in what he confesses. This is good, what he confesses. In fact, he notes, this is well-pleasing to you. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This is who you are, this is what you do, and it's good that you do it. That is what Jesus confesses about his Father. Not only is this a reason for thanks, this is also for our Lord an expression of God's grace or kindness to sinners. Why has he done it this way? Because it pleased him to do it. And by the way, this doesn't just extend to the Father. We're going to see in a moment. It extends to the Son as well. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, notice, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. The Father has made choices, and the Son is making choices. This is the grace of God. It's, it's, it's God's kindness being demonstrated to sinners. Interesting to be in, in Romans chapter 11, when the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the electing grace of God with respect to Israel and the nations. And he explains what God is doing in history and how the unbelief of Israel doesn't represent a total and final rejection. God has a plan for them in the future, but right now it means riches for the nations, riches for the Gentiles. He contrasts that in the terms of God's kindness. Romans 11.22 says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And there he's talking about the Gentiles as a, as a group. Right now, God pouring out salvation in large numbers upon the nations, but there will come a day when there's a hardness to the gospel message. And in that day, there's going to be a, a redirection of God's saving focus, and Israel will see an outpouring of salvation such as the world has never seen, ethnic Israelites coming to faith in Jesus. But it is the kindness of God on display that He would save anyone. You see, here's what amazes us. We ask the question, why doesn't God save everybody? When in reality, what we ought to be asking is, why does God save anybody? Why has He saved anybody? So that not only is His electing grace real, it is His, it is his kindness it's on display as He does this, which means it's a reason for us to worship Him, to give thanks to Him, to delight in Him. What a gracious God God is. If He had dealt with us according to our sins, we would have all perished. What do you deserve? You deserve hell. 
Ephesians 2 makes this so clear. We were all, by nature, children of wrath. That's what we deserved. But God, who is rich in mercy, the Bible says, demonstrated grace toward us. For by grace you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a reason for worship. So let me just ask before we move on. Do you worship God for His sovereignty and salvation? Do you? Surely there is someone hearing me this morning that you have struggled with this. And you find yourself troubled by this. And I have compassion for you because I was once troubled by it. I've already shared that. I argued up and down, no, this cannot be true. How does this square with the love of God? And how does this square with the responsibility of man? And how does this square with the free offer of the gospel? But then I came to see it is true. And if, I, if my mind is to be the mind of Christ, if I'm to be conformed to the image of my Savior, that I must see this and respond to this the way that He did. And what do we see Him doing right here? He is rejoicing. He is full of thanksgiving toward His Father because of His electing purposes. Do you worship God for His sovereignty and salvation? Will you? Maybe this is the better question for the person struggling. Will you worship God for His sovereignty and salvation? Will you bow your knee? Will you say, you know, I, I don't have to have my mind completely grasp these truths in order to believe them. In fact, anyone who completely grasps the sovereignty of God and salvation, would you please stand? None of us completely apprehends this. But in humility, you see, we must bow the knee and say, this is who God is and this is what He does, and we will worship Him for this. And when we do, we join our Savior. We join our Savior. We learn from our shepherd. Third thing I want you to see, God's electing grace is real. God's electing grace is reason for worship. Third, God's electing grace demands humility. It demands humility in the outworking of God's saving purposes. To whom does salvation come? God has chosen to save human beings in a way that He must humble them in order to deliver them. No one is saved until they are humbled. Until they're brought to the place where they see that God is God and they are not. Until they are willing to repent of a life that would put man on the throne and instead recognize and acknowledge the one who is truly on the throne. Jesus is giving praise to the God who is Lord of heaven and earth. There is nothing over which He does not rule. So that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to Him not just as Savior, but as God. And you repent of a life where you've enthroned yourself, lived according to your own standards, violated the law of God, therefore deserving the wrath of God, knowing you deserve nothing but God's wrath. Oh, how grateful you must be that He's willing to show you mercy. So that God is not saving people who are wise and intelligent in their own sight. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, that is, in their own estimation. Wise and intelligent in their own estimation. The, the proud, 
God resists. He gives grace to the humble. And so when someone comes to Christ, how do they come? They come, into verse 25, like infants. You've revealed the true significance of my miracles to those who have come like children. They simply believe what you are revealing. They don't argue with it. They don't, they don't resist it, deny it, diminish it. They submit to it. These are the people whom you say, people who are brought to the place of humility. Now listen, that means God has to do it. Where does the humility come from to embrace the gospel? The answer is it comes from God. This is why it's Him revealing it, because He's the one who does the humbling work. None of us are humble by nature. It is God who humbles us. In fact, every one of us, when it comes to this subject, we eventually must come to the place where we close our mouths. It's very instructive in Romans 9. Paul walks through a consistent set of objections that he would meet with when he taught about the sovereignty of God and salvation. He walks through objection 1, objection 2, objection 3, and then finally he gets to the point where we all arrive at, and that is you just need to close your mouth and believe what God has told you. Romans 9.14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is this really fair? By no means there's no injustice on God's part. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion. How do we explain you, Christian? Not, by your, not ultimately by your choice or by your efforts but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God is glorified. He's glorified in judgment, and He's glorified in salvation. He's glorified in a Pharaoh, and He's glorified in you. And ultimately, if you ask, what is God at work for in this world? It is on behalf of His own glory, and that is right. And it's only our sinfulness that struggles with that idea. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to find your delight in what God delights in and to recognize God is perfectly wise and good in all of His ways so that if something is most important to God, you can know it's most important. And if what is most important in His work in this world is that His character, His name would be exalted Conformity to the image of Christ is when we give thanks, we give praise, we worship when that is happening. Which is what our Lord was doing. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? Common objection. Is this fair? Objection number two. Doesn't that make us all robots? Isn't this determinism? Who resists what he wants then? How can man be responsible? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Key statement there. 
out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Here's what you have to understand. Since the fall of Adam, there's one fallen lump of clay in terms of God's decrees, right? From eternity past, having decreed the fall, He now decrees salvation. And as God decrees salvation before the perfect mind of God, there's one fallen lump of clay. It all deserves to be damned. It all deserves to be sent to hell, destroyed. But God in His mercy chose that out of that one fallen lump of clay, He would make vessels that He would rescue. And it's His right to do it. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Oh, don't you see the mercy of God in your case? Don't you know you deserve to be judged forever in hell? Don't you know you deserve to be destroyed? But God, rich in mercy, instead determined before you were ever born that He would bring this good news to you of His Son and He would open your eyes so that you could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, so you could understand the gospel, so that your heart would be open. He granted you the humility you needed to become like an infant and to simply believe His good news regarding salvation. God refuses the proud. God receives the children. And can I just say something in passing very quickly? Listen, dear ones, we need to keep walking the way we began. We all began at the point of childlikeness. We simply believe God's good news regarding His Son. Do you know you're meant to walk on in the same way? In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is this. If you have become wise and intelligent in your own sight, you have fallen from the place you should be. We go on in childlikeness. These are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. That we are wise enough to simply take our God at His Word and say, I'm not God, you are. I can't get my mind around it entirely, but this is what you revealed. And not only do I know it's true, I know you are good. So even if I can't understand how it all reconciles itself, you, it doesn't have to reconcile in my mind. In your mind, it reconciles, and that's all that matters. Because you're good, God. And in our text, we see evidence that God produces this humility because notice the people who are going to come to Jesus. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does God do when He saves someone? He makes them weary in their sin. For the first time, they are weary in their sin. They see their sin as sin. And they know the load of guilt that belongs to it. And they're weighed down. They're heavy laden. And He makes them willing in their faith. Weary in their sin, willing in their faith, because now they are willing to accept the yoke of Christ. He will be the master. He will be the Lord. They will be His servant. They will come under His yoke. 
And He enlightens them to the knowledge that this One who will be their Master and Lord is gentle and kind and will relieve them of their burden and take away their sins and set them free and shepherd them forevermore. This is what God teaches sinners when He saves them. So that He produces in human hearts by the work of His Spirit, by the grace of regeneration, the humility necessary to a true understanding that leads to salvation. What was the difference between you when you heard the Gospel and received it and the person who hears the Gospel and rejects it? The difference ultimately is not explained by your will or your exertion. It's explained by God's mercy. God granted you the humility you needed to receive His Son. And there's nothing more hum humbling, I don't think, in, any, in all the Bible than this doctrine. There's nothing that, that more emphasizes that God is God and you are not than to say your salvation is not explained by you. Your existence is not explained by you. Nobody has any trouble understanding that. God formed you in your mother's womb. But for some reason we want to think my existence isn't explained by me. My environment isn't explained by me. God spoke all this into existence. The, the course of history is not explained by me. There's a lot that happened before I was ever born, and God was sovereign over all of that. And if Jesus tarries, there'll be a lot that happens after I die, and God is sovereign over all of that. I don't get to choose when the rain comes. I don't get to choose when the sun shines. I don't choose the temperatures. Right, Texans? I don't choose the temperatures. I have no control over when I die. All my days were written down in God's book before there was one of them. So I might live to be... 58, I might live to be 30, I might live to be 80. I don't control any of that. I don't give breath to my lungs. I don't give power to my heart to keep beating. God is sovereign over everything, but then it comes to salvation. And I want to say, but that was my job. And that was my doing. And God says to us, no, I am Lord there too. Your salvation is explained by my mercy. It's real. It's worthy of worship. And it demands humility. It drives us to the place of seeing that God is God and we are not. Fourth, God's electing grace is mediated by Jesus. By God's sovereign will, all of this centers on His Son. His electing grace is mediated by Jesus. Father, this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. By the will of Almighty God, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus of Nazareth. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Him. He is the door. He is the way. He is the Deliverer. He is the Savior. He is the great shepherd of His sheep who laid down His life to save His sheep. And that is by the will of the Trinity. That is by the will of Almighty Sovereign God. So that the sovereign grace of God is not only on display in the decision of God, but in His choice of the agent the one who will mediate this. 
In other words, the execution of the Father's will. Jesus says, Father, I thank you, this is, this is your choice. But now he goes on to say, and this will be revealed to anyone whom the Son wills. So the Father's will is being carried out in and through the Son's will. And their will is one. Because there's one divine nature. God is one. In essence, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And so there's no division in their will. And so the Father's will is being executed through the Son's will, which is one with His own. This is the Father's delight. He has handed this over to His Son. The choice of the Son of God as the mediator, the plan of God for the incarnation that the eternal Son would take to Himself forever a sinless human nature. I mean, right now in the heavens, you understand, your Savior is a man. He is the God-man, but... He will forever be human by the choice of Almighty God. This was the Father's good pleasure to hand all of this over to His Son. Hand what over? Everything necessary to that mediation. The sovereign plan of God from all eternity in the infinite wisdom of the Trinity, it was always to be that the eternal Son would come to earth, take to Himself a sinless human nature, be our mediator, our Savior, our King, our Shepherd, and everything necessary to that mediation would be handed over to Him. William Hendrickson put it well. He said, All things necessary for the carrying out of the mediatorial task have by the Father been entrusted to the Son. What things? From the preceding chapters, it has already become clear that Jesus, the Father's Son, has received authority over Satan, chapter 4, verses 1-11, through over demons, chapter 8, verses 28 through 32, over human ailments and handicaps, winds and waves, body and soul, life and death, his own disciples and all other people, to save them, chapter 9, verse 13, and to judge them, chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. From chapter 28, verse 18, we learn that he's been given all authority in heaven and earth. From other parts of Scripture, it's clear that as mediator, he was endowed with the spirit of Jehovah, that is, with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of Jehovah, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. In the heart of the mediator, there is peace, light, life, love and joy. All these spiritual qualities and many more have been entrusted to him by the Father in order that from him, as the fountain, they might flow out to others. And other passages already mentioned, as he goes on to talk about John 1.16 and others, it has become clear, therefore, that the mediator has whatever is needed to render a human being truly blessed. Whatever is needed to render a human being truly blessed, it is found in Jesus. And that's by God's will. So that salvation's design is that you can never know the Father apart from the knowledge of the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal that knowledge. You can't know the Father without the Son revealing that to you. That's His choice, but it's also found in Him, in fellowship with Him. That's how you'll know the Father. In a relationship with Jesus is how you come to the Father. By the way, when it says here that no one knows the Son except the Father nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. This places both the ability to know the Son and the Father in the same category. 
of needing divine revelation. God is unknowable to sinners unless He makes Himself known to sinners. And Jesus is as unknowable to sinners apart from divine revelation as the Father is because the Son is God, even as the Father is God. John MacArthur said, No one knows the Son except the Father. Man has no way in himself of discovering what God is like because his finite mind cannot grasp God's infinite nature. Because the Son is divine, Jesus says, only the divine Father truly knows Him. The obverse is equally true, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Divine truth can only be divinely perceived and divinely imparted. Philosophy and religion are utterly incapable of reasoning out God or His truth because they are of a finite, lower order. Human ideas and concepts are earthbound and totally fruitless in producing spiritual truth or guidance. God must break into the darkness and emptiness of man's human understanding and show Himself before man can know Him. Well, by God's sovereign will, God will be known in and through His Son. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. So it's real, worthy of worship, demands humility. It's all mediated by Jesus. Fifth, God's electing grace is communicated through calling. Through calling. God's elective grace is communicated through calling. This is amazing, isn't it? No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then this is followed in verses 28 through 30 by an invitation. By an open invitation. By an unrestricted invitation. All who are weary and heavy laden, anyone willing to receive His yoke, come! Come to me. And he issues a promise. I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls, verse 29. You'll find a kind of slavery that is freedom. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. I'll save you. I'll deliver you. What is this? This is the calling offered in the gospel. This is what we would refer to as the external call. The preaching of the good news. The declaration that Christ is the Savior and that He's willing to save sinners. There's no conflict between the sovereignty of God and salvation and the free offer of the gospel. On this day, I can say with the authority of Christ, on the authority of Scripture, anybody in this room... You're weary. You're heavy laden. You know you need to be saved. Come to Jesus. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will change your life. But what we know from the rest of Scripture is those who actually respond to that call receive an additional call. It is an internal call. In that sense, it's a secret call. It is, as Lydia experienced, it is God opening the heart 
It is as 2 Corinthians 4 declares, it is God shining His light into our heart. God says, let there be light. And there's understanding. And there's the heart of flesh. And there's life that's willing to receive the Lord. And that's God's doing. So that the external call is universal. But the effectual call, the call that actually produces what God decreed, that is limited to the elect of God. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. our Lord said, For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The call is broader than the choice. Many are called, but few are chosen. Romans eight twenty-eight says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And, and, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And in times before when we've taught this, I've tried to illustrate it this way. Let's, let's imagine, just for the sake of, the, uh, of, of teaching you here, let's imagine we've got 30 people in the group foreknown. God foreknew 30 people. And by the way, I think when you study the whole of Scripture, you'll see foreknowledge is love. It's a pre-planned love relationship. It's knowing someone in the sense of having a relationship with them. There, there's a people God has, has, has set His saving love on. Those people are predestined. He says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. The foreknown, he says, for as many, he says, for those whom he foreknew, for those whom he foreknew, he also, that same group, predestined. So we have 30 foreknown. How many now do we have predestined? 30. We haven't lost anybody. What did he predestine them to? To be conformed to the image of his son. They're going to be like Jesus one day. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, we have 30, he also called. How many now has He called? 30. And those whom He called, He also justified. What is that? To be declared right with God. You see, all the called in this sense of the word get saved. Everyone foreknown is predestined. Everyone predestined is called. Everyone called is justified. And everyone who is justified, He also glorified. How many? 30. You don't lose anybody. Now, if many are called, but few are chosen, there has to be more than one kind of calling. There's the external call that is the preaching of the gospel, the offer of Christ. Then there is this calling that always results in justification. It always results in salvation. This is why believers can be referred to as the called. This is one of the ways that God refers to us. We read it a moment ago in Romans 9. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You notice the calling is out from a people. People called from the Jews. People called from the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you hear that? You, you preach Jesus, and to some, that message is a stumbling block. To others, it's foolishness. But if you're called, that message represents the power of God and the wisdom of God. Many are called. If you're chosen, it has to be a different kind of calling, and it is. First verse of the book of Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. I've got good news for you this morning, Christian. You're one of God's called. There was a time when you heard the gospel with your ears, but God granted a calling in your heart. And your eyes were open and your heart was open, and you, that's why you were humble and received Jesus as Lord and King and Savior and Shepherd. God's electing grace is communicated, it's experienced in time and history through calling. The free preaching of the gospel through which God gathers His sheep. The sheep, here's another analogy Jesus used. My sheep hear my voice. And so the gospel is preached and the sheep are gathered in because the sheep hear the call. And they answer it. Six point, final point. God's electing grace produces rest. God's electing grace produces rest. This is what Jesus is offering. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's electing grace produces rest. Rest for those who receive it. The rest of forgiveness. Where would we be if we didn't know we were forgiven? How many of your sins has God forgiven? All of them. All of your past sins, all of your present sins, all of your future sins, paid for by the blood of your Savior. Paid for in full. Not treated lightly. Not, not swept under a rug. Not excused. Paid for. In full. By the blood of Christ. You're a forgiven people. The rest of, of knowing you're really forgiven. The rest of righteousness imputed. When you believed in, in the saving purposes of God. What God designed. When you believed, He not only forgave all of your sins, but He took all of the perfect righteousness of His Son and He gave it to you as a gift. So that, so that now when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. On your worst days, on your best days, your legal standing before God hasn't shifted an inch. The righteousness of Christ. There you were born in the filthy rags of your own sinfulness. First of all, original sin. Then you added to that with your own sinning. Filthy, unacceptable, dirty rags. Even your best works were filthy rags in the sight of God. And He stripped you of those filthy rags, took them away through forgiveness, and clothed you in the perfect robe of the righteousness of His Son. And now you will stand forever before God accepted because of what Jesus did for you. That's rest. Not working, trying to work my way to heaven. I have all the righteousness I need. It was given to me the moment I believed. The rest of fellowship with God. Is there more, any more miserable life? Those of you who've been saved, you know this. Is there any more miserable life than life lived outside of fellowship with your Creator? Existing but not knowing God. 
existing but not having fellowship with the one who made you and will judge humanity. But knowing that now I've been ushered into the very throne room of God by the blood of Jesus, that I stand in His grace, I've been stationed in His grace, I have fellowship with God that is, is unalterable. No longer subject to falling from it. Eternally secure. That's rest. But there's another kind of rest that our Lord demonstrates in His praise. And that is a rest we can know despite those who don't receive Him. He has pronounced woe on these cities, but He's still full of thanks. The sorrow is real, but the worship is real. The sorrow is real, but the thanksgiving is real. And everybody in this room who knows Jesus, I know this about you, you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus, that you want to know Jesus. And you pray for them and you share with them your burden for them. Can I tell you something? The only way you can ever know rest, even as they don't believe, is that you know God is sovereign and you are not. In other words, you have to know your limitations. You can pray for them. You can share with them. You can try to live the message before them, but you can't save them. And we know that instinctively, don't we? Because we get on our knees and we pray for people. If it's just a matter of their will and yours, why are you praying? But if God saves sinners, now prayer makes sense, doesn't it? And here's the good news. No matter how hardened they may seem, no matter how unreachable they may seem, the same sovereign God who saved a wretch like you can save them. So pray for them. You say, well, what if the Lord never saves them? Is He perfectly wise? Is He perfectly good? Does He know better than you? Will He give you the grace one day in eternity to process that and to embrace that? So you can rest even then in His sovereignty. So, God is sovereign in salvation. Absolutely sovereign. Do you acknowledge that that's true? God is sovereign in salvation. Is that worthy of praise and worship? Does it trouble you or do you delight in it? God is sovereign in salvation. This is humbling. Does it, does it remind you that God is God and you are not? Are you walking in the same way you began? You, you began like a little child. Are you still walking like that? God, whatever your word says, that's what I'm going to believe and do. You are wise, I am not. You are strong, I am not. You are good, I am not. I'm just going to believe you. God is sovereign. That means Jesus is king. He's the mediator. Have you bowed your knee to Him as King and Lord and Savior and Shepherd? God is sovereign. Jesus is calling. He's offering salvation to anyone who will receive Him. Anyone who's weary, heavy laden, burdened, come to Him. He will save you and forgive you forever and grant you His own righteousness. God is sovereign. Will you take His yoke? Will you take His yoke? Will you come under His gracious care and receive what the only Savior given to mankind is offering. He offers you life, and the life is found in Him. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, these things are wonderful. They are weighty. They are beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but they are true, and they are right, and they are good. 
And I pray, Lord, for anyone who is where I once was, struggling with these things, struggling to reconcile them in our small minds. Lord, today would you grant the humility that just comes to you like a child, that is willing to say, though I can't understand it all, I will glory in it all. Because God is God and we are not. Lord, thank you for your mercy that you've had upon us. If you had dealt with us according to our iniquities, we would surely have perished, but instead you've had mercy upon us. Out of that one fallen lump of clay, you have made vessels for honor, for honorable use. You have put it in our hearts to glorify you and live for you and serve you. This is your doing, Lord, not ours. And so, Lord, would you take these things that can be hard for us and would you instead make them sweet to us so that we know the rest that is found on display in your Son that can be known in our own hearts. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.